Our scripture this morning comes from uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning foods offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. For some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word. There we go. How about that? Uh, let Let me start over at the beginning of that. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth because there are parties and factions that have sprung up over different issues. And the result is there's division and disunity in the church. And so Paul, the apostle, is taking these divisive issues one by one and clarifying and giving instruction, calling the Corinthians to love and to be patient, to mutual respect for one another over over, uh, these things that have become differences. And that's a lot easier to do when the issues are what you might call clearly black and white, where there's a clear biblical command or principle that's being challenged or abused. So a few weeks ago, probably I guess over a month ago now, you might remember, we looked at chapter 5, and there the issue is adultery. And that's really a no-brainer, right? I mean, it's one of the ten. Don't commit adultery. And yet here there's adultery, and so how does the church handle that? Okay, so that there's some pretty clear directions about how to do that, Okay. It becomes harder when there is division over things that are matter of opinion rather than biblical principle. And this is the case here in chapter 8 with this issue of uh, food offered to idols. Was Was it okay, was it not okay to eat food that had been sold in the market that had been previously used in pagan idol worship ceremonies? And some of the Christians in the Corinthian church had no problem with this at all, but some had a really big problem with it. And for legalistic, black-and-white people like me, it's infuriating, but Paul basically says, it doesn't really matter what you do. There's no right and wrong. Whether to eat 
It's not a matter of opinion. It, it, whether to eat or not is a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of faithfulness to God's word, or it's a wisdom issue to, to cast it in kind of the framework we've been talking about for a long time here now. Okay, we learned something very important here. Okay, and as your friend and as the pastor of this church, I want to say we're at a place as a church where we've grown so fast over the last four years and where we're facing, we're headed towards some major decisions about the future that are going to be hard. And so I really feel like, and I really, I've never preached through this, this book before and have been surprised by the fact that Paul's fighting for and what I feel like I'm fighting for, and that is to bring us together to fight for the unity, the one heart and soul of the early church in Acts chapter 4 that has to be part of our life together in order to see the gospel move forward among us and in our city. See, and what 1 Corinthians 8 is warning us about is there, there's, and, I, and I, if you've been in church for very long, for more than probably five years, you've, you've lived this, is to see people in churches walk away from relationships with one another over things that are a matter, that are a matter of principle, but the problem is, is those things shouldn't even be a matter of principle. We are prone to take things, and the category I'm going to use is things that are a matter of opinion and conscience. In other words, that the scripture doesn't clearly speak about, and so it's really a wisdom issue, and you've got to figure it out the best you can. But what we do is we take those things that are a matter of opinion and conscience, and a lot of times we elevate them to black and white truth, and then we use that knowledge or that truth to judge others and to distance ourselves from them. And the result is disunity and division. And I've watched it happen in this church. I mean, this is real. Okay, so the title of this series in 1 Corinthians is The Wisdom of the Gospel. And to be wise means that we have to be able to wisely distinguish issues that are a matter of faithfulness and obedience and those that are a matter of opinion and conscience. And where it is the first, as is the case in chapter 5 with adultery, where there's a clear command that we are to obey... Then we have to pursue one another, we have to confront one another, we have to call one another to, a, to repentance aggressively, as Paul's already said. However, where it is the second, where what the issues you're dealing with are a matter of application of a command, then in that case, wisdom means we have to bear with one another in our differences, we have to be patient, we have to be teachable, we have to listen, and continue to teach and pray for wisdom. But above all, we have to refuse to allow our differences in the way we're applying God's commands to create division, disunity, relational distance, whatever it might be. That's what this passage in 1 Corinthians 8 is about. So there are three things here I want to see, and I hope you'll look with, with me there. I want to talk about the general command here. Then secondly, really how that general command or that general call to obedience gets fleshed out in a specific example. So there's the general command, then there's the specifics or the example, and then finally I want to finish with the truth that gives you the power for obedience to what Paul is ultimately calling us to here, okay? So the general command, the specifics or the example, and then the truth that gives you the power for obedience. Those three things. Okay, first, let's just, let's take the 40,000 foot view for just a minute, okay? Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, 
but love builds up. Okay, there's an ethical issue. Is it okay for Christians to eat food bought in the market that had been previously used in pagan idol worship? Okay, we're going to go into the details in just a minute. Okay, right now I want to think big picture. Okay, there's a moral dilemma facing the church. Can we eat food sacrificed to idols or should we not eat? And everybody, what Paul's saying is everybody has a strong opinion about what the right thing to do is. Some strongly believed that it was okay. They had good reasons for their opinion. Okay, they reasoned from the scripture You know, God says this here, and there's this here. Okay, so we think it's okay. Others in the church just as strongly believe that it was not okay. And they had really good reasons for their opinion too. And that's what Paul means when he says, all of us possess knowledge, verse 1. Everybody has an opinion about what's right. Okay? You see that? That, that's That's the problem. But then I love what Paul does. Did you notice that the phrase is in quotations? Paul's quoting them. And they've written to him and said, you know, everybody knows this is the way it should be done. And watch what he does. In the next sentence, he says, so he says, um, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all all of us possess knowledge. But then Paul is cheeky. It's really great in verse 1. Look what he says. This knowledge. You see that? So if you're a homeschooler or if you're a Sheldon Cooper mini-me, okay, he's mocking them. It's sarcasm, okay? It's sarcasm. Paul's saying this not, oh boy, you really know, right? This knowledge puffs up. And so he, he's, what he's trying to get them to see, okay, is what you know is not all there is to know. You don't know. You think you do, but knowledge that you have is not real knowledge. Okay, so the different groups in the church have taken their opinions about whether they should eat food sacrificed to idols or not, and they've elevated their opinions to black and white truth, and then they're using that truth to attack those who disagree with them, okay? And we're told the reason why they're doing this. Look at verse 1. The reason they're doing this is to get puffed up. This knowledge, Paul says, puffs up, and that's the reason he knows it's not real knowledge. That phrase means they're trying to win the argument to prove their superiority over the other side. In other words, their goal is to win. Their goal is not to love. And we've talked about this, right? I'm right, you're wrong. Man, doesn't that feel good? Anybody with me? I'm right, you're wrong. Right? To be on the winning team, to have the last word in a debate... Man, it feels so good. But why does it feel so good? And Paul gives the answer here. It feels so good because what happens is, is it puffs you up. It makes you feel good about yourself. You feel better than other people or smarter or kinder or more committed. And we've seen this before in chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of, a, none of you may be puffed up there, same word, in favor of one against another, okay? The church is going beyond what is written, he says. They're taking issues, okay, that are a matter of opinion and conscience and preference, and they're elevating their opinions and preferences to black and white truth, then using that truth to gain superiority over one another. That's what's happening. To become puffed up in favor of, of one against another. So the metaphor then of being puffed up 
is what Paul's talking about. They're using, that's why they're using, that's how they're using the truth, is to try to puff themselves up, to feel better about themselves. But it also helps us understand why. In other words, why do we do this? Why are we all the time trying to use our quote-unquote knowledge to, to get puffed up? And Paul says that being right, that being on the winning team, it inflates your ego. And that the ego is your sense of self-esteem or self-importance or whatever, whatever it might be. When, when we're right or when we win or when we're on the winning team, the ego gets inflated. But, of course, that means that before it was deflated. If, if, if the way this works is that you use the truth, judge other people, feel superior over them, and you, <clears throat> excuse me, you get puffed up, then that means before that, that you're empty. And what the Bible's trying to teach us is that we're empty on the inside. That theologically, the way we talk about this and say it is that we've lost our original righteousness. And that means that deep down, we know we're not right. We're not okay. We're not enough. There's a gaping void where there should be affirmation and love, and that is because we're at odds with our Creator. And this is the condition the Bible calls sin. And what I want you to hopefully understand is that sin is not just breaking the rules. It's a condition. It's a state of the heart. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden at the beginning of human history, they fell into a condition of sin. And that was marked by a number of things. They experienced guilt, They lost their original righteousness. They lost communion with God and fell under his wrath and curse and condemnation. And all of that's theological language. That can be hard to understand, so let me put it another way. In the story in Genesis 3, we're told that the result of their sin was that they were naked and they were ashamed. And it's that sense of shame that's the emptiness in the ego that I'm talking about. We come into the world in a condition of sin, not just doing wrong, okay, but feeling but feeling wrong. Feeling as if we are wrong, that we're all we're all empty, we're all deflated. There's a vacuous space right here in our hearts that's meant to be filled with God and God's love and approval, but instead what we're doing is we're running around trying to fill up the emptiness on our own. We've lost our original righteousness, and so we're looking for a righteousness. We're looking for something that will make us think, I'm right, I'm okay, I'm a good person, puffing ourselves up. And here's the problem. Soren Kierkegaard, who's a Danish philosopher, said that the human ego is always looking for something that will give it worth, a sense of specialness or purpose and human pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives to achieve our own sense of self-worth and to find a purpose big enough to give us meaning without God but if the human ego was built think about this with me if your if whatever word you use right Freud used ego if the human ego was built to be filled up with God's presence and love then if you try to put something other than God in there what happens it's too small It'll just rattle around in all the other empty space in there. And the result will be, and this is where we live, is that because we're doing this, our ego becomes like a black hole. It's insatiable. It's a black hole of need and self-concern. So we run around constantly trying to fill it up, trying to puff ourselves up, and that's what's happening to the Corinthians. They're empty on the inside. And because they're empty on the inside, they have this desperate need to win. They want to be right. They want to be on the right team. 
And it's caused division and hurt feelings and relational distance. And so the Corinthian church, the way I would say it, the Corinthian church is a bunch of friends who've become rivals. And Paul's coming to them in this letter and he's saying, listen, you guys have it all wrong. The goal, the goal is not to win. The goal is to love. Right? Because knowledge puffs up. Look, verse 1, but love builds up. And what Paul means is if you're empty on the inside, you'll be full of need and self-concern. And so the most important thing to you will be to be puffing yourself up, not loving others and building them up. And that's what Paul envisions for the church, a community of people whose hearts are filled to overflowing with God's love for them in Christ Jesus and not empty. And let me just make one other application before we move on. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he, that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What, is that? what, what exactly does Paul mean by, by that? I just want to make another application before I move on. And that is that this knowledge, this quote-unquote, this, you know, Paul's sarcasm again, this, this quote-unquote knowledge that puffs up, Paul says it's not really knowledge. In other words, if you're confident in your own opinion, then, and so confident that you're using it to elevate yourself and to judge other people, if, if you're that confident of your opinions then you don't yet know as you ought to know because that person is is not objective their knowledge is not objective it's skewed it's self-justifying because when you attach your identity to being right or to doing things right then at all costs you can't be wrong you see you see what i'm saying so you cut yourself off from truth Because you're wise in your own eyes. Very, very dangerous. And so here's the general command then. Don't be puffed up. Build up. Don't be puffed up. Build up. But let's flesh this out in some of the specifics. Or let's use the example Paul provides for us here in this passage, okay? Uh, This issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. So imagine. Imagine a community group gathering. Okay, this is our modern context, okay? We'll try to work it out that way. Imagine a community group gathering, and there's meat there, which means that somebody has gone to the market to get the meat for everybody else. But in Corinth, most of the meat being sold by the vendors in the market had been they been previously used in the pagan idol temples in their worship. So a family would bring a sacrifice to a temple of a pagan god, and then the officials of the temple would take what they didn't use in the, the service They would sell it to the vendors who would then sell it to their customers. So when you sat down to eat at your community group, you literally had no idea if the meat had come from one of the temples or not. Okay? That's the problem. Now look at verses 4 through 6. Paul's advice is that idols are not in reality rival gods to the Father, Son, and Spirit. They don't even exist. And therefore, in Paul's mind, it's no big deal whether the meat was offered to an idol or not. Okay? That's the truth. I mean, that, that's the gospel truth. Idols aren't really idols. He says, we know this. And so it's really not a big deal. But the problem was that not everybody in the church knew this. See, for some of the Corinthians who were coming out of paganism and into Christianity, when they ate, they couldn't make that distinction. So verse 7, they eat food as really offered to an idol. Their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, it felt wrong to them to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols, even though it wasn't wrong. They felt 
badly about something they shouldn't have felt badly about. They, they felt they were violating their conscience by doing this, even though their conscience shouldn't have been tuned into it. Their consciences are getting the best of them, and they feel guilty about it. And Paul says it means they had a weak conscience. Now, the best example I could come up with, and it's you know pretty standard fare, but if you could think of a former alcoholic who becomes a Christian, okay, the Bible very clearly says it's not wrong to drink alcohol, right? It's wrong to be drunk. Sin, it's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to be drunk on wine. But this person coming out of alcoholism knows firsthand the pain of alcoholism, and they just can't shake the feeling that even though Scripture is very clear that it, that it would be permissible for them to drink, they can't shake the feeling that they shouldn't drink at all and that others shouldn't either. They have a weak conscience. They think it's wrong to drink even when God says it isn't. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? Okay. Because this is, this is hard. So the person um, with a weak conscience is the person whose heart isn't oriented to the grace and love of God and Jesus Christ. So for them, the rules are really important because what matters the most is following the rules. You do the right thing, right? That's why God loves and accepts you. Okay? So the more, the more religious a person is, the weaker their conscience is as a general rule. And that's really interesting because we typically think of it being the other way around. But the temptation for a person with a weak conscience is to go around imposing their rules on everybody else and passing judgment and feeling superior to others in their rule following. Okay? And this is what's happening. So I just tried to think of us as a people and some of the, you know, and us as a culture works like this. Good Christians, you know, fill in the blank. Good Christians don't eat food, sacrifice to idols. Or good Christians do eat food, you know, sacrifice to idols. Good Christians dress up for church because they want to give God their best. Anybody else ever heard that? Right? Okay. Good Christians sing hymns. Or good Christians don't sing hymns. Right? I mean, you can go down the list, right? Good Christians homeschool their children. Or, good Christians don't homeschool their children. I mean, all these things, we could go, keep going, oh, I mean, we could go forever. All these things are matters of conscience and opinion, but for a person with a weak conscience, they're not. They get elevated to black and white truth, and and, and then that's that's where the trouble comes in. But see, a person with a strong conscience then, so that's the weak. The person with the strong conscience is a person whose heart is oriented to the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ, so much so that they know, they, they, they live with the reality of knowing that God does not love homeschooling families more than public school families or vice versa, right? Please tell me we believe that, right? God doesn't love, you know, God doesn't love church, God doesn't show up when churches sing hymns and leave when they sing praise choruses or show up when they do one, right? It's silly, Okay, so in matters of conscience and opinion, a person with a strong conscience is completely free. But here's the temptation. The temptation for them is to look at people with a weak conscience, the people who are still struggling where they shouldn't be, and to say, you know, that's stupid. Those people need to grow up. And then to be impatient and to feel superior in their freedom. Let me say it this way. The strong person is the, quote-unquote, is the person who knows that he doesn't know everything and it's okay with that. 
strong know that they don't know. Right? They're just doing, they're doing the best they can and they're leaning into the grace of God and Jesus. And they're not bothered by that at all. The weak person is the know-it-all. Is the person who is confident in their opinions and thinks everybody else should be doing the same thing they're doing. There's no gray. Absolutely everything is black and white. They know that they know, which unfortunately in verse 2 means that they don't know that they don't know, according to Paul. And the church is always a mix of these two different types of people, and the issue is always changing. The dividing lines are always changing. So, how do the strong and the weak resist the temptation to puff themselves up and instead love and build others up? So let me speak to each, okay? And again, it always changes. depends upon the issue. Sometimes you might find yourself in the position of the strong person, other times in the weak. But let me talk to each for just a minute, and then a gospel application to close. Okay, the weak. The weak love the strong, okay? Those whose hearts are not oriented to the grace of God and Jesus. The weak love the strong by refusing to use their scruples to judge other people and condemn them. Uh, some of you were here a few months ago. I, I uh, actually got talked into debating another pastor in our presbytery over the issue of uh, whether or not it was acceptable for Presbyterian churches to have a, have a contemporary form of worship in their worship services. Okay? So there's some who, who truly believe contemporary worship is unfaithful, it's unbiblical, and we really should, should not, you know, sing, we shouldn't have guitars and drums up here, it should only be organs. Okay? I argued uh, the fact that contemporary or traditional worship style is a matter of opinion and conscience and not a biblical mandate. Okay? My brother, who I was, who I was um, debating this with, does not believe that. And, and I love him, but it is really hard for him to not look down his noses on people who don't look down. He doesn't have more than one nose. Look down his nose, right? The human anatomy, one nose, right? It's really, really hard for him to not look down his nose on people who don't do things the way he does them and he thinks they should. It's a real, it's a real, um, real temptation for those who are weak to not use their scruples to judge other people by them and condemn them. Okay, the weak feel like they're strong because they feel more committed than the other side. And when you're doing more, when your obedience is more exacting than everybody else, when you're sacrificing in ways that others aren't willing to, it's so hard not to turn it into a righteousness and become puffed up instead of loving and accepting people with different opinions. Okay? The strong on the other hand, love the weak. So the weak love the strong by refusing to use their scruples to judge others and condemn them. The strong love the weak by refusing to allow their freedom to become a stumbling block. See, it's easy for the strong to look at the weak and to say, they're just dumb. I'm not not gonna allow their immaturity to affect the way I live my life, right? Ain't nobody got time for that. I mean, that, really? Really? I mean, that, I cannot be hindered or bothered by their silliness and to become impatient or aggravated or frustrated. But do you see how to be impatient with another person's struggle? That's, that's a horrible, horrible crime against that person. To demand that people change and get with the program. Right? It's just a, it's an absolute failure to love. 
And so what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what he spends a lot of time doing here in chapter 8 is he's saying, he's saying that's exactly what they should do, that they should be patient with one another, uh, that they should, because the danger is that in their freedom, you know, in other words, Paul says, we know an idol's not really an idol. It should not be any big deal. And yet there were people in the church for whom it was a big deal. And Paul says that the danger in being free and in knowing that, that, that you know, you have the truth and that you should use the truth in the way that's appropriate, the danger is that you might cause the weaker brother to go against his conscience. So you're at community group and the meat is served and you pile it high on your plate and you look over at your friend who isn't eating because his conscience isn't clear because he's not sure whether the meats come from a pagan idol temple or, or, or not. And you look over at him and you say, come on, man, it's no big deal. Right? Don't be stupid. And then that person gets knotted up and they're worried that they're, you, know, you might judge them or look down on them. And so they eat too to be a part of the crowd because of the pressure they feel or whatever it might be. And then afterwards they go home and they're just spiritually devastated. Because he feels, you know, that person feels guilty and condemned. You've wounded his conscience. And Paul says that in doing so, you've not only sinned against him, but you've sinned against Christ. Instead, Paul says, love means being understanding, being patient, and putting aside your rights. And not, think about this, we're going to talk about this next week. This is absolutely amazing. Not doing things you are completely free to do in order to love and serve others who are weaker. So Paul's vision for the church is a place where people who are struggling are given room and time to struggle and grow and get the answers they need rather than being made to feel stupid. A place where everybody has strong opinions and beliefs and good reasons for doing the things the way they are doing them, but they're also willing to listen and to learn and to grow where and not become self-righteous, where we're teaching one another, where we're all helping one another be sharper in our approach to faithfulness, where the goal is not winning and proving that you're right and other people are wrong, but loving and encouraging and building each other up, teaching each other and learning from one another until we grow to maturity in Christ Jesus and bear fruit that gives glory to God the Father. So how do we become a people like that? That's the last thing I want to talk about and I want to finish. And the answer is, is the gospel truth in the middle of the passage in verse 8, where Paul very just plainly says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we eat and no better off if we do. Paul says, eating or not eating, neither option is a righteousness. Being right about food or alcohol or theological nuisance. I was about to say, man, I'm bad. Theological nuance, otherwise known as nuisance, right? Being right about food or alcohol or worship style or school choice, whatever it might be, being right about that doesn't make you right. Doesn't make you any better than anybody else. It doesn't give you something to boast about. See, that's the deal. Both the strong and the weak use their knowledge to puff themselves up and to feel superior in order to try to get a righteousness. And what happens is is it absolutely destroys community. It makes people judgmental and critical and condescending. And But what Paul says and what he's warning us about is that there's something, there's something in the DNA of Christianity that just doesn't allow this to happen. And it's this. 
You see, every other religion in the world says that you're justified. You get a righteousness by your works. That is, you're made right with God by being right or believing right or behaving right. But not Christianity. Look at what Paul says again. Food will not commend us to God. In other words, eat or don't eat. It's completely irrelevant to your standing with God. That's what Paul means. And it's not just about food. Church attendance will not commend us to God. Being a good parent will not commend us to God. Being a good teacher or running a successful business will not commend us to God. Even being an international missionary will not commend us to God. Our righteousness is not tied to our performance. We are not right with God because we have right theology or the right parenting style or we make the right decision. Being right is completely irrelevant. And religion... Moralism is about being right, about believing right, about behaving right. And that's why when there are people who are feeling superior and looking down on other, that's not Christianity. That's, an un- that's a failure to believe the truth of the gospel. It's unbelief. It's a, it's a being severed from Christ, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that we read. It is a walking away from the truth of the gospel back into religious moralism, which honestly too often passes for Christianity. And in order to be a Christian, see, you don't have to be right. Religion's about being right and behaving right and believing right. But the one condition of becoming a Christian is that you admit, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I messed it up. I did it wrong. I was on the wrong team. And so a Christian is a person who's come to the end of hoping they'll ever find a righteousness in themselves that will commend them to God. And they turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ who became for all who believe, according to Paul in, Roman, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in the Gospels, when Jesus went down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, a voice came from heaven which said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So God looked at Jesus' life in the same way he looked at the creation in Genesis chapter 1. And he said, that is very good. And if your faith is in Jesus, then you are in him. And that means that God looks down upon you, irrespective of your behavior. And he says, that is very good. You're right, not because of anything you've done. It's a righteousness that is yours by faith. And that means you have nothing, absolutely nothing to boast about. But here's the other thing. See, Jesus' obedience was so comprehensive and thorough. And the Father's commendation of him so expansive and final that when the truth of God's love and acceptance of you in Christ Jesus comes into your heart, it won't puff you up. It won't puff you up so that you quickly become deflated again and need to go and look for a way to inflate yourself. It won't puff you up. It'll fill you up. It'll build you up. And that's how the church can become this beautiful thing that Paul envisions, a community of people who are not empty and desperately looking to be filled, but a people whose hearts are filled to overflowing with God's love for them in Christ Jesus, and they're just looking for a place to put their love. See, that's the difference. And so I'm thankful that we get to come to this table this morning because it is here, as we celebrate this meal together, 
that God does that work in us. And so let's pray that he would. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess to you that too often our hearts uh, are void because we, like Adam and Eve before us, have run and we've hidden ourselves from you. And the result is that we are empty, we are naked, and we are ashamed. And so we pray that you would come uh, through the word that is preached and through this sacrament that we celebrate together now, that you would fill our hearts with the love and grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and that in filling our hearts that you would um, transform us into a people who cannot go about life trying to puff ourselves up, but who can truly go about life and make it our goal in every social interaction we have, that the aim and the direction of our life would not be to meet our own needs, but would be to meet the needs of those around us, that would not be to serve ourselves, but to serve others, not to be puffed up, but in love to build up so that this church, this body of people, would become a people of your own name, full of beautiful works that will glorify you. That's what we pray and long for, and so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are but weak men. You are a strong God. We whisper praises. You sing a loud song. Uh, Zephaniah 3 says that the loud song God sings over us is a song of delight and love and enjoyment of us as his children. Isn't that amazing? And so the promise of this benediction is the promise that just as the father looked down upon his son Jesus at his baptism and said, man, that's good. If your faith is in him, then the father truly does sing upon you, sing over your life. He looks down upon you and he looks upon your life and he says, man, that is good. Despite all the sin and the failure. Because we're in Christ. And that's the promise of this benediction. So rest in that. Don't go and try to prove it. Rest in it. And if you rest in it, it'll make you a person who loves others more than you love yourself. And that's the kind of person that brings glory to God. And so receive the benediction and may it make us obedient to the call to love one another and to love our city. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.